the National Archives podcast series. Highlights of security service files released at the National Archives. Presented by Professor Christopher Andrew. That I'm the official historian of um, the security service uh, MI5 rather than the secret service uh, MI6 or uh, SIS. And my uh, uh, day job is at Cambridge University where uh, an incredible number of students are um, doing PhDs, um, MPhils and for that matter undergraduate dissertations based on exactly the kind of material that um, we're looking at. Because the introduction is, is so good, it doesn't seem to me that there's any point in me going through those files which were already self-explanatory. So if entirely understandably you You've come here looking for um, our criminals and body parts. This isn't an area that I particularly specialize um, in. And I think that the files are, and the introduction to the files are pretty self-explanatory. But in any collection of really interesting uh, recently released files, there are going to be some that are good, uh, rather more complex than that. And my view, and uh, you may not agree with it, is that that's where the really the most interesting stories lie. Not with the, you know, if you have to write a story in, in two hours, well, my view would be go for the body parts, and it is a pretty interesting story. But uh, when files are released, they also, in many occasions, are the last bits in the jigsaw. So what I want to do is to concentrate on those files which are being released today, which complete, so far as I know, but who knows, there may be other bits in the, in the jigsaw, Stories which have been running for some time, but which now begin to look a little bit different. But what I'm about to talk about is the most um, significant, I think, espionage family in modern British history. And then to move on to the family of um, uh, the last man to be executed for high treason. In other words, first the Kuczynskis and the, um, the Joyces. The Kuczynskis, first of all. The story, it seems to me, has never received as much notice as it deserved because it's come out by dribs and drabs. If the whole thing had come out in the way that we can see it today, it would have been a big story. You'll find that uh, amongst the names that are identified are Jürgen Kuczynski and Ursula Kuczynski, married name, or one of her married names, uh, Ursula Burton. This is a family of German communist refugees from Nazi Germany who come to Britain after Hitler's uh, rise to power in Germany in 1933. Uh, in case there are any lawyers um, uh, present, I should say that um, not all the Kuczynskis uh, were um, uh, spies, but on the other hand, uh, plenty of them were. More Kuczynskis were spies. Uh, than um, I think um, any other family in 20th century Britain. Jürgen was head of the KPD, in other words, the German Communist uh, underground when he came to Britain. His biggest achievement was um, to recruit the most important scientific spy in British history, whose name was Klaus Fuchs. And uh, during the Second World War, he puts him in touch with the GIU, Soviet um, scientific and uh, military intelligence. And um, he goes off to uh, Los Alamos, where the world's first uh, atomic bomb is being designed and built, and he hands over the complete plans to Soviet uh, intelligence. So when the first Soviet atomic bomb is tested in 1949, uh, it's an almost exact replica of the first um, American bomb. 
His sister is called um, Ursula. Ursula Burton is her married name. Sonia is what she's called by Soviet military intelligence. An astonishingly rare example of a woman working for Soviet intelligence who is controlling a man and a major agent. She becomes, during the Second World War, um, the controller of Klaus Fuchs. And I'll move on in a moment to uh, indicate that um, he is not the only person that um, uh, she uh, controls. The Kaczynskis are closely linked with another major Soviet spy case, which has only been known about for the last few years, and about which there are to be major revelations in October of this year. Ursula Kaczynski was um, one of the controllers, and I think probably the most critical controller, of the so-called Great Granny Spy, who was first identified when she was 87. Uh, Melita Norwood, the most important British female agent in KGB history and the longest serving of all Soviet spies in Britain who contributed to the exodus of um, nuclear intelligence um, to uh, the Soviet Union. She was first uh, revealed to the British public on the front page of uh, virtually all British uh, uh, newspapers almost nine years ago. I know that because I was the person who did it, although I got the, uh, uh, the information from my collaborator, Vasily Mitrokin, who was a, uh, a KGB defector who had brought with him an astonishing amount of material from KGB archives. But that's nine years ago. There is a major new biography of Melita Norwood out in October. So what does it do that is related to the files that are, are released? Well, um, it's satisfying from my own parochial point of view that it confirms the account in the Metrokin archive, but it also tells us a great deal more. And in particular, it tells us a great deal more about the Kuczynski family. The author is Dr. David Burke. Uh, David Burke is the only person that um, I've ever met who, um, or ever expect to meet and who I dare say that you have ever encountered who had a life-changing experience in Milton Keynes bus station. He had this life-changing experience at 9 a.m. on Saturday the 11th of September 1999. Why? Because he, w he was moving from Leeds where he was um, uh, teaching history at the time to have lunch with Melita Norwood. I had no idea that Melita Norwood uh, was the longest-serving Soviet spy in um, uh, the Soviet espionage in, uh, in, in Britain. He was working on her father's papers and then changing buses at um, Milton uh, Keynes bus station. Um, he went to buy a newspaper and to his horror discovered that um, on the front page of The Guardian there was a picture of Melita Norwood with certain indications that she had been working for a foreign power. He then picked up a copy of The Times which had uh, exactly the same picture but which had the slightly more memorable, sorry to any uh, Guardian correspondent um, here, I'm sure you can do better on, uh, on Monday, the spy who came in from the co-op which is uh, where, where for ideological reasons she bought her instant um, instant coffee. There may be non-ideological reasons for doing it, but I have myself never encountered them. Um, then, by the time he had discovered that all the papers on sale in the uh, Milton Keynes bus station, with the exception of Sporting Life, had a picture on the front page, he was so confused that he'd missed his connection. And then he rang her up 
and she said, I'm sorry, I've been a bit of a naughty girl, you'd better come next week. The reason that she said that was at that very moment, representatives of the entire British media, with the exception, I think, of Sporting Life, um, were actually hammering on her door, demanding an interview as to why she had done what it is uh, that she had done. And over the, um, the next week, she was made some remarkably attractive uh, financial offers for revealing her um, life story, but she didn't do so. Uh, she revealed it to uh, David uh, Burke. If you Google David Burke and the, um, uh, the title of his book, The Spy Who Came In From The Co-op, you'll find uh, the details. For anyone who's physically present, um, I'll explain, if you want to, how to get in, in touch with the author of this wholly remarkable book. Now, what, is it re what does the book reveal? Uh, about the Kuczynskis. And I should say that David Burke has given me permission to say what I'm about to say. The Kuczynskis were part of the most extraordinary community in British history of Soviet spies and communist refugees. Where did they live? Absolutely where you would expect them to live in the 1930s, at the epicenter of the British chattering classes. In other words, in Hampstead. And they lived in Lawn Road, and in particular, they lived in a new block of flats which had been put up, which is still there. I've been there. And it's the uh, Lawn Road Flats, the very first block of deck access flats that have ever been put up. Normally, um, you only see uh, deck access uh, flats now on Gold uh, Z cars, but that's roughly when I stopped um, looking at them. Now, I already knew when I used to work on this kind of material uh, that Lawn Road Flats contained um, the most, the ablest Soviet intelligence recruiter in British history. That's a large claim, and I am not embarrassed to, to, to make it. In other words, Dr. Arnold Deutsch, uh, a man who went from university entrance as a first-year undergraduate to PhD with distinction in only five years in um, uh, Vienna University. And meanwhile, was also working uh, for um, a group headed by the greatest uh, Marxist sexologist of um, uh, the time, Wilhelm Reich. So who would you send to Cambridge University? Well, obviously, uh, Dr. Arnold Deutsch. So um, years ago, I um, uh, presented a program on um, ITV, I think it was, uh, about this. And I was um, uh, standing outside his, um, his flat when a woman came out from the next door flat, uh, it, you know, Many of you have done pieces to camera. The last thing you want, just as you're doing your piece to camera, is somebody come out the next door flat. And she said, oh, no, not another film about her. And uh, I was um, flummoxed. Uh, so I inquired as to who her might be. And she said, Agatha Christie, of course. Uh, so, in fact, um, in Lawn Road Flats, Dr. Arnold Deutsch, the recruiter of the Magnificent Five, the five greatest spies working for a, a foreign power ever produced by Cambridge University, um, he was next door to them. But one door away on the other side is Bridget, Brigitte, as she was actually called at the time, Bridget uh, Kuczynski. And this is where um, Melita Norwood, her maiden name was uh, Cernis. Uh, the Cernis sisters got to know the Kuczynskis. And this is of extreme importance because um, during the Second World War, um, it's uh, in fact one of the Kuczynskis who um, uh, Melita Norwood, then Melita Cernis, had met at Lawn Road, who starts controlling her. So it's a, 
another very rare example of a female case officer controlling uh, a really important um, uh, Soviet um, uh, spy. And anyone who doubts uh, that uh, Melitonova was a really important Soviet spy will doubt no longer once they have uh, either read uh, the um, forthcoming biography by David Burke or have spoken to him uh, over, the, um, uh, over the phone. So um, that, it seems to me, is one extraordinarily interesting family story, the most extraordinary family spy story that I can think of in modern uh, British history. Now let's move on uh, to the other one, right-wing extremists and groups. Uh, Quentin Joyce, um, the younger brother, in fact there were two younger brothers, but um, he, he was one of them, of um, uh, William Joyce, uh, better known as uh, Lord Haw Haw, who uh, at the, shortly before his 40th birthday becomes, as I've already said, the last man in British history to be executed for high treason. Uh, Quentin Joyce. Well, MI5 initially um, gets uh, the story a bit wrong. I mean, I would say, but I would, wouldn't I? Um, that what is remarkable is how much MI5 actually got right in the 1930s. Uh, why do I think it's remarkable? Because the number of officers in MI5 um, less than a year before the outbreak of war was only 30. And the idea that um, even with a certain amount of secretarial help, an organization that was that small uh, could penetrate uh, the British Communist Party at a high level and the major British fascist groups at a high level is pretty um, uh, extraordinary. But they got a number of things wrong. And initially they got the Joyce's wrong. Why did they get it wrong? Well, because uh, the man, the agent runner, um, one of the ablest agent runners um, in, I think, um, uh, the history of, of modern espionage, uh, Maxwell Knight, who was um, uh, combined a job with uh, agent running for MI5 in his later years by becoming the BBC's first TV uh, uh, naturalist, had known the Joyces, uh, both William and his younger brothers, in the 1920s. And um, it never occurred to him that um, either William Joyce or the younger brothers could possibly be traitors. How did this happen? Well, in the 1920s, um, uh, nobody remembers it, it now. The biggest organization which included fascist in its name in British history was a group in the 1920s which originally called itself the British Fascisti, and then it called themselves, they called themselves the, the, uh, the British Fascists. But the reason why I think it's, this organization has been so frequently misunderstood is that the connotation, particularly in a British context, fascist in the 1920s, and fascist after Hitler comes to power, is entirely different. I mean, uh, uh, Mussolini was uh, not a good thing for anybody, but there were plenty of people, including Winston Churchill, who later become the most celebrated anti-fascist in British history, who actually think that Benito Mussolini um, is doing a, f a faintly positive job in Italy in the, the 1920s. So does the Archbishop of Canterbury, so does Ramsay MacDonald, so does the King, and so does um, uh, various other people. Now, Maxwell Knight, um, BBC TV naturalist and best agent runner in um, uh, the first half of the um, uh, 20th century for MI5, is in the British fascisti. He's a traditional right-winger. He's not a radical right-winger. 
but it takes him a little while to grasp that the Joyce family have become extremely nasty uh, by the later 1930s. He still thinks of them as the kind of people that he'd known. So uh, when one looks at the kind of reports that he writes about William Joyce, and I'll come on to Quentin in a moment, he says that uh, William Joyce is a raving anti-Catholic. Yes, he's a fanatical anti-Semite. Yes, his mental balance is not equal to his intellectual capacity. But it is very unlikely that he could do anything um, uh, which would be, uh, contradict his basic patriotism. And, of course, what um, William Joyce did during the Second World War as Lord Horsall was absolutely contradictory, uh, in contradiction with um, uh, basic um, uh, patriotism. And he has the same initial difficulty in coming to terms with um, uh, the younger brothers, in particular Quentin. So this is one of the, the documents that you will find in the files that are available today. He writes um, in May 1937, Quentin Joyce is employed at the Air Ministry. Quentin is about 20 years of age. Um, when he was quite a young boy, I knew him personally and always found him very sound. Uh, Quentin is described as liking his work in the Air Ministry. That's it. Yes, he was working for the Air Ministry uh, very much. There is no evidence that he is using his position in any improper way. And the, as the information came to me as a friend, I should be reluctant to do anything which might um, prejudice his, um, his career, so on and so on. So... Uh, Max Knight was astonishingly successful in penetrating fascist movements. It just took him some t years to realize that William Joyce and, uh, uh, to a lesser extent, Quentin Joyce, were not the people that uh, he had originally uh, uh, got to know. And so when you have a look about the service-held doubts as to the degree of threat posed by Quentin Joyce, um, I think that that derives particularly... Uh, from the time it um, uh, takes Maxwell Knight to realize how much the Joyce brothers have changed um, since the, um, uh, the 1920s when he had known them. Nonetheless, they're sufficiently suspicious to get a home office warrant, in other words, um, permission to uh, intercept correspondence, listen in to telephone calls, and they discover that um, he's in touch with a German intelligence officer, Christian uh, Bauer, and uh, so on. And then, at the beginning of the Second World War, Quentin Joyce is interned. Now, uh, there have been some very good books um, uh, written uh, about um, James Joyce uh, recently. From the point of view of MI5's relations, or monitoring of uh, the Joyce brothers, there's no doubt in my mind that the, uh, uh, the best book is one actually produced by the, um, uh, the National Archives. It may be still available. Peter Martland, Lord Hawhaw, the English voice of Nazi Germany. Uh, but there have been also a number of, uh, of conspiracy theories. And, you know, whenever there is a good spy story, there's going to be uh, a bad conspiracy theory. So sorry if I'm offending anybody who's, who's here. Uh, but the idea that William Joyce left for Germany uh, shortly before the outbreak of the Second World War because somebody in MI5 had tipped him off or um, um, because Oswald Mosley had tipped him off not very likely. Why? Because by this time, Maxwell Knight hated the guts of William Joyce. The idea that he would do him a favor is not, I think, within the bounds of possibility. Uh, not merely did um, Oswald Mosley, uh, with whom he had had a really... Uh, the Oswald Mosley, the, um, the head of the British Union of Fascists, um, uh, not like 
um, by this time um, uh, any of the, uh, of the Joyce uh, uh, family. Uh, they were um, uh, in um, um, fairly close to litigation about who owed who uh, money. So I think the reason why William Joyce um, leaves for Germany is that he's broke, and then secondly, he realizes if he hangs about, he's going to be interned. And um, indeed, his, uh, his brother is uh, interned. And when um, Quentin Joyce is let out in uh, 1943, um, he immediately uh, returns to his old contacts in the British um, Union of, um, of Fascists. So those, I think, are the two most complex and also the most interesting stories, but there are plenty of others uh, which are far less uh, complex. Uh, so let me just um, run through, through a few of the others and indicate where I think there are some added value uh, can be obtained uh, from them. If you turn to page uh, 11, there are three names. Uh, I want to say just a brief word uh, about um, the last two names, uh, Ruben Falber and Alexander Orloff. Ruben Falber, uh, amongst other things, was the man who received, um, on behalf of the Communist Party of Great Britain, uh, the money that was annually paid over by Moscow. I mean, one of the great mysteries of uh, the final years of the Soviet Union is why the hell they were still passing money to so many communist parties in the, the West. I don't know exactly how long they were passing money to the Communist Party of Great Britain, and Falber, as you see, the file only goes 1957. But what we do know, because the documents have been released, as late as 1989, even under Mikhail Gorbachev, they were giving $3 million a year to the least significant political party in the United States at the time, in other words, to the, um, uh, the Communist Party. In other words, the ritual of handing over money, which would be entirely wasted uh, to Western Communist parties, was so firmly embedded that it was still going on in the 1980s. Ruben Felber had long gone, so he wasn't um, involved with it if it was simply if it was still going on in this country. Now, forgive me for mentioning at this point that uh, the uh, two historians that I've mentioned um, uh, so far, that is to say David Burke and Peter Martland, are both members of the Cambridge um, Intelligence um, Seminar. So I naturally talk about people's research I know about as opposed to people who are based um, elsewhere who I know rather less about. But one of the things that is changing the way that the history of uh, the early Cold War is being written, not merely in Cambridge but elsewhere, is the ability to look at the transcripts of the bugging of King Street. In other words, the headquarters of the British Communist Party. And what emerges from that is, to some extent, counterintuitive. In other words, it sort of calms things down. So listening to what Ruben Falber is saying, listening to what all their comrades are saying, you can see what an incredible mess they're making of things. In other words, uh, the more you listen to Ruben Falber, the less the Communist Party seems any kind of threat. And then, you know, there's um, people further to the right than they should have been who thought that uh, Kwame Nkrumah or Joma Kenyatta was some kind of threat. All they've got to do is listen in to what the comrades are saying in King Street and you know, uh, they say things like, after all we've done for them, look at what they're doing now. In other words, um, it's, um, even though listening in to the headquarters of any political party is not something that I am personally in favor of, I think that it has a generally calming effect on British policy in the, um, uh, in the early Cold War. Alexander Orloff. Now, if only he had defected to Britain 
Alexander Orloff knew quite a bit about um, the Cambridge Five, and particularly he knew quite a lot uh, about um, uh, Kim Philby. But uh, he defects to the United States, and amazing though it may seem, they did not grasp the kind of intelligence that you could get from Soviet defectors until actually after the, uh, uh, the Second World War. And by that time, Olaf has, um, has, has clammed up. The very last example that I'll talk um, about is um, Peter Asbury. Now, you know, um, uh, it's not a source of particular pride to me, but um, Cambridge University is the only one of the world's uh, great universities that has recruited really exceptional people for both sides as opposed to um, one side in significant um, numbers. All the um, top five, the Magnificent Five, uh, so-called, those places are all full, and um, uh, so are probably the, the next 20. But there are still further vacancies uh, for revelations in um, uh, lower down the, the list. Now, Peter Asbury is a conundrum, and I don't have any particular view about um, Peter Asbury, but let me put the case for and the case against. You will see that he was in regular contact with prominent communists such as uh, Springhall. Well, Springhall's um, uh, main ambition when he was in touch with um, uh, people like Peter Asbury was to get secrets out of them to pass on to the Soviet Union. That's why he was sentenced to seven years in jail during the Second World War, even during a period when the Soviet Union was um, uh, an ally. On the other hand, no evidence in these files that anything that was um, ever passed on. So um, these files contain an extraordinary amount, it seems to me, of interesting material, uh, some of it absolutely straightforward. And you can master it by, uh, you know, even if your deadline, which I'm sure it isn't, is 12.15, you should have no difficulty in meeting the, um, the 12.15 deadline for the body parts. If you're interested in the families, it might take the, uh, the rest of, um, uh, of the day. And then there are still a number of conundrums. And uh, Peter Asbury is a good example of a uh, uh, conundrum. Uh, so thank you very much. And I look forward to uh, reading the Sunday newspapers. This event was recorded live on the 28th of August 2008 at the National Archives Q. This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved.